All right, I'm going to read Job 42, verses 7 to 17. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. Let's ask God's blessing on our study. Father in heaven, as we look at these verses in the book of Job, we ask that you will give to us a correct understanding of them and that you will reveal to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in them, and that you will be honored in our conversation. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. So we deal with two things here in these um, 11 verses of Job, the last 11 verses of the book. And those two things are the restoration of Job's friends and the restoration of Job himself. But these restorations are very different. The restoration of Job's friends is to the favor of God. God was angry with them for their sin. And the restoration of Job is his restoration to the circumstances Uh, with which he had begun. So we see the restoration of Job's uh, uh, three friends in verses 7 to 9, and there are three things that we want to talk about in those uh, three verses. First of all, God, you will notice, spoke to Eliphaz as the oldest, I think, probably the oldest, but at least the leader in uh, the attack that the three friends had made on Job and on Job's integrity. Eliphaz had been throughout the first one to speak. 
in all three rounds of speeches. And now, therefore, Eliphaz becomes the representative of God to the friends. He had been the representative of the friends to Job. He becomes now the representative of God to the friends. So that's first. The second thing is the the sacrifices that were required of them. And there are a number of things that we want to talk about in connection with those sacrifices. They had sinned. God makes that very clear. My wrath is aroused against you, he said. And we may say, of course, that they had sinned, first of all, in their attack on Job. They had falsely accused Job of sin. But that's not what God is particularly concerned about here. Maybe there's some concern for that a little bit later in this, these verses, and we'll get to that in due time. But God is concerned about their sin against him, against God himself. They had, he says, not spoken of him what was right. And he actually says it two times. First in verse 7, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. And then again in verse 8, at the end of that verse, you have not spoken of me what is right. So the, the first important question I think that we want to ask here is, how had the friends not spoken what was right of God? When we looked at the various speeches which the friends made, we noted frequently that the friends uh, spoke truth. They spoke about God's righteousness, and they spoke about God's judgment on wickedness, and these things were in themselves true. So why does God say to these friends that they had not spoken of him what was right? And I think the answer to that question is that they had diminished God and his majesty by the way that they had spoken of him. They had spoken of him as if he, as if he were a factor in a, an equation of justice. They had always um, insisted that there was such a close connection between affliction and judgment, that the only possible explanation for Job's uh, affliction was that God was judging him for sin. And in speaking thus of God, they had diminished the glory and majesty of God. They were guilty, I think we may say, of transgression of the second commandment. They had formed a carved image They had not formed a carved image with their hands of wood or stone or metal, but they had formed a carved image with their minds. And their carved image was, we might say, their theology. They had wrong ideas, uh, inadequate ideas of the greatness and the glory of God. And this is something that we should... uh, Uh, be careful of in our own theology. Our own theology, of course, cannot comprehend God. We must never imagine that in our theology we can fully describe God, or even that we can fully describe all that he reveals to us in his word. Our theology is 
important for the understanding of God. I do not want to say anything against theology itself and the practice of theology, but theology can become a carved image if we think that in that theology we have fully comprehended who God is and what he is in himself. He is not our theology, and our theology is not him. That was the sin of these, command, of these three friends. God, therefore, was angry with them, and he comes to them to tell them that they need his forgiveness. And that in order to obtain his forgiveness, they must make an offering. Now this is, of course, a standard practice in the Old Testament scriptures. When people sinned, they made offerings. They made offerings because it was necessary that atonement be made for sin. That was the point of the offering. That blood had to be shed because sin had been committed. And that blood had to be shed, of course, because the blood of the Lamb of God had not yet been shed. Now that that Lamb of God has shed his blood for our sins, blood must not be shed any longer. But they had to shed blood for sin as a sign of the blood of atonement in the true Lamb of God. And this blood had to be shed over and over and over again. Partly, as Hebrews teaches us, as a demonstration that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And partly as a constant reminder to God's people in the Old Testament that they needed the real blood of atonement which God had promised to them. We also are commanded to confess our sins, but we, need, we do not need to bring any sacrifices with them. Their sacrifice was the today's equivalent or their equivalent of today's repentance and confession rooted in the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a question that arises here also, and that is that God commands them to take seven bulls and seven rams. And we can ask why seven bulls and seven rams? I don't know that... Uh, there's a positive answer to the question, at least I haven't discovered a positive answer to that question, but perhaps it has to do with God's covenant. This is the covenant number, the, the number of rest, and the number, of course, of rest from sin, ultimately, as Hebrews 4 teaches us, and as God teaches us also in the fourth commandment as given in Deuteronomy 5. It's rest from sin, and so maybe God is saying, this is the way to the restoration of covenant fellowship. This is the right way to rest from your sins and to re-entering my covenant with me, or my fellowship with me. But there's one more thing, too. And that is that when they offered these sacrifices, the Lord commanded them to go to Job. He said to them, 
Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. Now whether that means that Job himself uh, slaughtered the sacrifices for them and offered prayers for them, or whether they offered the sacrifices and then Job prayed in conjunction with the sacrifices, I'm not sure. But we do have to ask why. Why did God command them to go to Job? There are a couple of things that we can say in that connection, I think. First of all, there's a beautiful bit of irony here. And that beautiful bit of irony is obvious when we turn to Judge or Job 22, verse 30. This is part of one of Eliphaz's speech to Job, and he has been urging Job to repent of his sins and has been encouraging Job to believe that when he repents, God will bless him. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up, you will remove iniquity far from your tents. Verse 23 But in verse 30, he concludes his speech by saying, He will even deliver one who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered by the purity of your hands. That is, Eliphaz is saying to Job, If you repent and restore um, proper relations between yourself and God, God will hear your prayers, and he will even hear your prayers on behalf of others. He will deliver one who is not innocent and Eliphaz, of course, had no idea at the time that he said that, that he would be the one to be restored by Job's prayers. But that's exactly what happened. The friends had accused Job of sin and had accused him falsely. God comes and he accuses the friends of sin. And he says, now go to Job and ask him to pray for you. Tables were turned on that. But there's also um, the fact that God says here, I will accept him. Go to my servant Job, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly. So it's implied there, I think, that if these friends had simply offered their sacrifices without going to Job, Job would not, God would not have accepted them. They needed to do this through Job. And why was that? Well, perhaps it's because God wanted to teach them the need for a mediator. We all need a mediator. In the Old Testament, there was always a human mediator for those who had sin. The patriarchs acted as priests for their own houses. We know that Melchizedek acted as a priest for Abraham, that Jethro was a priest in the land of Midian, that there was a priesthood established by God for his people Israel. There had to be a mediator between God. There is need for a mediator, and perhaps God means to teach these three friends that need for a mediator. It's also possible that 
God wanted them to understand that not only had they sinned against Job, uh, against him, but they had also sinned against Job, and they needed to confess their sin to Job in bringing their sacrifice to Job and asking Job to pray for them for the forgiveness of their sins. They had to admit that they had sinned. And so it may be that God is bringing them to that point of confessing their sin to Job as well. So that's the second thing. This this whole matter of the sacrifices and the various things that we can say about those sacrifices. The third thing that we find in this passage is that God talked to these three friends, or to Eliphaz rather, and through him to the others, about Job. And that's also interesting. He calls Job my servant. And he calls him my servant four times in these two verses. Seven and eight. Notice at the end of verse seven, my servant Job, he says. And three more times in verse eight, go to my servant Job, and my servant Job shall pray for you. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And this is a title of honor for Job. It is clear that God is treating Job with honor there. And I think that this idea of of giving him the title of servant means that Job was the one appointed by God to act on behalf of his friends, to be the mediator with God on behalf of his friends. But he also says of Job to the friends, he has spoken of me what is right. You did not, but my servant Job did. And that, of course, raises another big question. How can God say that Job had spoken of him what is right when Job had justified himself rather than God and had said that God has taken away my justice. God has taken away my justice. Well, there are several things, I think, that we can say about that. First of all, we noted this before, and I think it's appropriate to note it again here in this context. When Job talked to his friends, Job not only talked about God, but he talked to God. You can go through all the speeches of Job's friends, and they never talked to God. They had plenty to say about God to Job, but they never talked to God. Job not only talked about God, he talked to God. That's a very significant difference, I think, between Job and his friends. That's one thing. The second thing that I think we can point out here is that though Job did sin in saying, God has taken away my justice, Job always passionately desired restoration to God. He had lost the fellowship of God. He felt that God had become his enemy. He was in anguish in anguish 
not over so much the losses, the physical losses and the family losses he had suffered, but in anguish over the loss of fellowship with God. He desired God in everything, and he had shown passionate desire for God in all his speeches to his friends. This was always what he was seeking. I want God. I want to be back with God. I want to know God again. I cannot abide this enmity of God against me. That was also a speaking right about God. Thirdly, I think we may say that Job had understood something that his friends had not understood, or at least had seemed not to understand. And that was he had understood something of the greatness and the incomprehensibility of God. The friends may have spoken of the incomprehensibility of God, but they really believed that they could understand God's ways with Job, and they could explain to Job what God was doing with him. Job did, never, did not ever talk that way. Job talked about God's ways as unknown, as incomprehensible, and he did that even in the severest kind of trial. He feared God, in other words. Not as he ought fully, in his sin of saying God has taken away my justice, he did not fear God as he ought, but he did fear God. Where his friends had talked about God in a way that diminished him, that showed that they did not fear him as they should. And then finally, we may say about this, I think, that Job had already repented. As we saw in verse 6 of this chapter, Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And because he had repented, his sin had been buried in the depths of the sea, as Micah testifies in his prophecy. Micah 7 verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Job's sin was, as it were, already forgotten. And so God says of him, he has spoken of me what is right. But notice that God had been merciful to Job. God had also been merciful to Job's friends. He is here being merciful to Job's three friends. He is showing them the way of forgiveness. He is restoring them to himself. He also will bury their sins in the depths of the sea. Let's turn our attention then to the, uh, God's dealings with Job and to his restoration of Job. As we noted in the beginning, this is a different sort of restoration. This is not a restoration by way of forgiveness. That's already happened in verse 6. 
This is a restoration to the uh, physical, worldly gifts and good things that Job had enjoyed before affliction came on him. There's an interesting note here in verse 10 that we should not ignore. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. He restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Not until he had prayed for his friends. And again, the question is why? Why should God wait with restoring Job's losses until he had prayed for his friends? I suspect that the answer to that question is found in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. He taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he explained that petition of the Lord's Prayer when he said, the Lord will not forgive you your trespasses unless you also forgive those who trespass against you. Job must, therefore, forgive his friends before he can enjoy full restoration. The Lord will receive him again and bless him again, not only through his own confession of sin, but also through his forgiveness of the sins his friends had committed. That's first. The second thing is that this restoration came partly through Job's family and acquaintances. You read about that in verse 11. All his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now, a few things about that as well. First of all, notice that there's one hint here, a very small hint, that all was not right between Job's brothers and sisters and acquaintances and himself prior to this. It says here, all those who had been his acquaintances before which suggests that they had abandoned him in the time of his suffering. And Job actually complained about that as well in chapter 19, verses 13 to 17. He said, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me, my relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Job was apparently not exaggerating his suffering there. His brothers and sisters and his acquaintances 
had abandoned him in his suffering. And we may well imagine then that their return to him now that God is restoring him is somewhat apologetic and that even their bringing of gifts is a kind of uh, wordless apology for their abandonment. They had all treated him as if he were a sinner, had all forsaken him as if he were not worthy anymore of their fellowship and their company. In this regard, his three friends had done better than the rest. They at least had tried to comfort him, though their comfort had proved miserable comfort. But these had not even tried. They had left him. And now they come to him somewhat apologetically, I think, to eat with him, that is, to have fellowship with him again, to comfort him for all his adversity, and to give him gifts. This was part, then, of the way that God used to restore what Job had lost. The third thing that we want to notice, then, is what the Lord gave him when he restored Job. We read, first of all, that he restored double the cattle. That's in verse 10. Uh, the last part of that verse, indeed, the Lord gave twice as gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then in verse 12, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. The Lord gave him double. And if you take these numbers from Job 42, and go back to Job chapter 1 and compare them with the numbers that you have there about Job's cattle, you'll see that they're exactly double, those numbers. Numbers in chapter 1 are half of these numbers. So God did indeed double what Job had, double his earthly possessions. And again, the question is why? Why would God double his possessions? Some commentators have suggested a connection here with Exodus 22, verse 4, where God commanded that a thief restore double what he had taken. And if you go back also to Job 1, verses 14, 16, and 17, where you read about Job's loss of cattle, you will see that at least in two of those instances, the cattle were stolen, stolen by enemies, taken away. And it may be that the idea here is that God is recompensing Job in that fashion, according to the rule of Exodus 22. That seemed quite likely to me. Others have suggested that God is here giving to Job the portion of a firstborn. The firstborn son received double portion of his father's inheritance. Perhaps Job is therefore receiving a double portion from God because God wants to assure him that he is indeed his son. So that's first, double his earthly possessions. The second thing was that he gave him ten children. He had ten children before his affliction. God gives him ten children again. This is a great covenantal blessing, of course. Children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. This is certainly part of what's here. God intends to remind Job 
of the blessings of his covenant. The number 10 may well also be a uh, sign of the completeness of this blessing. Job has his quiver full of them. But what's particularly interesting about this aspect of the Lord's restoration is that special attention is given to the daughters of Job. He received from the Lord at this time seven sons and three daughters. The only thing we read about the sons is that Job had them. Nothing more is said of the sons. But we're given more information about the daughters. We're given their names. Jemima, Kezia, and Kiran Hapak. We're told that they were very beautiful. In all the land were found no women so beautiful as the daughters of Job. And we're told that their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. This was not usual in those days, of course. The sons would inherit from their father. The wives would uh, become participants in the inheritance of their husbands rather than receiving from their fathers. But in this case, Job gave to his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. Perhaps all of this information is given about the daughters, and again, I'm not sure we can be positive about this, because Job's daughters were a special part of the consolation of God to Job. And Job expressed his appreciation of that great consolation of his daughters in giving them an inheritance among their brothers. Finally, God restored Job by adding 140 years to his life. After this, Job lived 140 years. He must have lived altogether something like 175 to 200 years at least. He saw his children, his grandchildren, and his great-great-grandchildren. That's also a covenantal blessing, generations of children. And we read, finally, he died old and full of days. And I think the idea there is the same as that which we have regarding Abraham in Genesis, that he died in a good old age. And there is a suggestion again of the blessing of God on Job in this matter as well. So in all these ways, God is uh, blessing Job blessing him abundantly. Now one of the one of the things that some commentators have said about this conclusion to the book of Job is that it seems too much like a, a fairy tale uh, ending to all of Job's sufferings. And they will even point out that there are many people of God who have suffered throughout the ages and God has not uh, restored them in the same way that he restored Job. Um, People of God lose their children. God does not necessarily give them children to replace the children they've lost. Or God takes away all their possessions, and he doesn't necessarily restore all the possessions that he's taken away. Or he causes them to suffer great illness, and they may suffer from that illness all their lives. Maybe no restoration. So, 
should we then complain that this is too much of a fairy tale kind of ending? And I think that what we have to understand is that the Lord is teaching us here something. In the Bible commentary edited by F.F. Bruce, he says this about the, this time. To the friends, the divine testimonial to Job has amply vindicated him. And he's talking about God calling Job his servant and commanding the friends to go to Job with their sacrifices. But in the eyes of his relatives and fellow citizens, the sign of divine vindication will naturally enough be the restoration of his fortunes. And I think that's probably true. Job's friends had said this judgment of God has come on you because of your sins. His relatives and his acquaintances had abandoned him. His brothers and sisters had abandoned him. Everybody had treated him as if he were a sinner. And by doing this for Job, God says, Job belongs to me. I bless him. He is mine. I vindicate him as a righteous man. Job was vindicated then in the eyes of those others, as he will also, and that's important to vindicate us in the great day of judgment when we hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. So that, first of all, there is a public vindication of Job here. But secondly, I think we may say this is recompense. And that comes across especially in these, these numbers, that he gives Job twice as much physical possession, that he gives Job as many children as he had before. This is recompense. God is recompensing Job for his suffering. And he does this for his people always. When they suffer for righteousness' sake, he gives them a recompense for their suffering. Remember what the people of God prayed in Psalm 90. In their great affliction, return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. And then especially this in verses 14 and 15, O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. According to the days you have afflicted us. That's what we see here. God recompensing Job according to the days he has afflicted him. The Apostle Paul teaches us the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When we suffer for righteousness' sake, there is a recompense for us. Not a recompense we deserve, no. It's a recompense that comes by the grace of God. But it is nevertheless a recompense according to the measure of the suffering we have had to endure for righteousness' sake. God rewards us in heavenly glory. And Job is meant to teach us that. He vindicates us before the world. He also recompenses us in spiritual things, in the heavenly blessings. 
And that brings us then to the end of the book of Job. Just a couple of comments by way of conclusion then. First of all, we turn to James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Very important for the understanding of the book of Job. James there exhorts suffering saints with the following words. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. And patience, of course, in that suffering. Then he names just one prophet in verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. Satan had mounted a powerful attack against Job, as strong an attack as we can imagine, an attack such as few have experienced in this life. But he could not conquer Job. Job did not curse God as Satan wanted him to do. Job did not even despair of God's goodness or turn away from God and say, he treats me this way, I want nothing more to do with him. Job always passionately desired God. He was patient, enduring in his sufferings. And of course, this grace of God sustained him. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, in, on this passage, in fact, cites Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to Peter, you're going to betray me. And then he went on to say to Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Satan had also desired to sift Job. And Jesus' words to Peter was, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. That same grace of God was exercised towards Job so that his faith would not fail and so that when he was restored, he could strengthen his brethren. That's one thing that James talks about, but the other thing James talks about is the mercy of God. You have seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. What does James call our attention to? Does he call our attention to that severe affliction that God sent on Job? Only to remind us that Job suffered. But when he speaks of God, he reminds us of the mercy of God. He is compassionate and merciful. This he's saying to suffering saints, to us in our sufferings. Look at the end of the Lord. He is very compassionate and merciful. And finally, we should remind ourselves once more that the gospel is here in the book of Job. It's here in a number of ways. First of all, in that Job suffered for righteousness' sake. Satan's attack on him was not because Job was a sinner. Satan's attack on him was, was, was because he was a righteous man. And in suffering for righteousness' sake, Job was 
uh, entering the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ himself. And therefore it applied to him as it applies to us. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, count it all joy. When you fall into diverse trials, for these things work patience. Job could say, as Paul said of himself in 2 Corinthians 4, let's turn to those verses. They're also important verses in this whole area of suffering. Paul says, we'll begin with verse 7, we have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We bear in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Job is an illustration of that great truth. Job is also an illustration of the grace of God in forgiving the sins of his people. He forgave the sins of Job and he forgave the sins of Job's friends. Job is an illustration of a strong faith, a faith that even in the worst kind of suffering says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He is an example of the grace that sustains and restores and in the end gives abundant joy. May God bless us with his word.